Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very excited to bring the conversation I had with Peter Frankopim. Peter is a professor of global history at Oxford University and director of the Oxford Center for Byzantine Research. He's also a senior research fellow at Worcester College, Oxford. He is also professor of Silk Road Studies and by fellow at King's College, Cambridge. Uh, Peter's work is on the history and politics of uh, really uh, much of the of the planet, so the Mediterranean, the Middle East, Central Asia, and beyond. Uh, he focuses on histories of climate, natural resources, and on connections. Uh, he is the author of The Silk Roads, uh, which has won numerous awards. It's well acclaimed. It's a fantastic book. He's also the author of The New Silk Roads. And his latest book, The Earth Transformed, an Untold History, is the topic of today's episode. We start the discussion by talking about how climate uh, has been different on the Earth over billions of years. We talk about various climate shifts uh, from billions of years ago that still impact the Earth today in, in some examples there. We talk about the evolution of hominins in the Holocene period, the formation of early cities, trading and impact on the Earth, domestication of horses and the steppe and how consequential that was. We talk about the industrial age and the beginning of fossil fuels. We talk about Rachel Carson and the rise of environmentalists and, of course, climate change today. I was absolutely thrilled to have Peter on the podcast. I mean, I, I enjoyed Silk Roads. Um, and as I say in this conversation, um, I absolutely inhaled his new book, uh, The Earth transformed. I thought it was fabulous. Um, it's obviously, as his other books, such, so large in scope. He's covering so many things, but you know the writing is top-notch of the highest, highest level and really is able to get at the central uh, aspects of many of these important topics, namely kind of this sort of history of, of or natural history of, of the earth, but really of what it means to have a climate that's changing and and really what makes uh, the climate changing uh, so fast in such a short amount of time uh, today. And so it's a really, really helpful, um, you know, document, a helpful book to show a type of, you know, history of different climate shifts and changes to then kind of inform us how at the very least we have to continue to adapt um, and how we can and make better improvements for our world today and for the future. Um, as always, you can find this conversation at my free Substack, conversiondialogues.substack.com. You can also follow me on YouTube, Converging Dialogues. Uh, so get over there, subscribe. Uh, you know, feel free to share and tell your friends as well if you are enjoying the, the podcast. Uh, much appreciated. And uh, now I bring you Peter Frankopin. I'm here with Peter Frankopin. Peter, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. It's a it's a big honor. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I will have uh, done an introduction for you and everything in the beginning, but just on your side, just tell folks uh, your kind of uh, thumbnail of who you are, what you where you are, what your background's in, and what you're currently up to. So I'm professor of global history at the University of Oxford, and I work 
Well, I would used to define myself by the the region that I work on. I specialize in what's now Turkey, Ukraine, Russia, Central Asia, Iran, India, Pakistan, China, and connections along the Silk Roads. Uh, but I guess I'm interested in making all sorts of different kinds of connections. So I work also on uh, the natural environment, uh, climate changes of the past, and I kind of I'm I'm a, a bit like um, David Hasselhoff in Knight Rider. I'm kind of looking for problems to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, and we historians, we don't normally think like that. We historians normally, you find a topic, uh, you know, the American Revolution, and you stick with it for the whole of your career. But I, I try to kind of uh, keep learning things and looking at looking at different kinds of connections. So um, mm-hmm. that's the that's the story about my new book. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's wonderful. So, folks that may know you will know uh, the Silk Roads, uh, but uh, you've got a new one out, which is called "The Earth Transformed: An Untold History." And is it fair to say that this is a a book on the, I guess you could say the the history of various changes of the you know the Earth's climate over since the beginning? Is is that a fair kind of snapshot of it? I guess so. I guess it's the history of the natural world. Mm. Uh, we 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 tend to when we think about history. Uh, and you study in high school and college, uh, you know, or, or just for pleasure, history normally means what humans have done. And it tends to be the same kind of roster that everybody listening will be familiar with, you know, the heroes and the villains of the Second World War, uh, you know, the great moments of the past that, you know, the French Revolution, American independence, et cetera, et cetera. But we, we get very shady, we, we get very obscure quite quickly. You know, you start thinking about before the year 15 or 1600. You know, people eventually pick up on the Romans and, and Russell Crowe and Gladiator. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot happened on this planet before we got here. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our interactions, a lot of the most interesting history is about either the natural world around us or how we've changed it to suit us for good and for bad. But, you know, some of the things in which are the big questions of the 21st century, things like where, is the, where are the big oil and gas reserves? Where are the rare earths? Where are the minerals? Where's the best place to grow wheat or rice? Um, those are all things that we've got no contribution to as humans. Those are deposits, or those are those are regions that we've worked out to cultivate that suit the natural circumstances, natural contexts. So I guess this one is trying to this book is trying to look at what is that natural world around us? How do we fit into it from the beginning of time, recorded history as well, and then what does what does that meant looking back at some of those familiar moments as well as, of course, in the present and future? Mm, yeah. Well, I mean. As I was, I was, I was telling you before we we got on, I I, uh, I absolutely love this book. I mean, your previous books are great, but this one really just kind of uh, sunk into me, and I I couldn't put it down. I, I probably read it in a weekend, if I'm honest. I just kind of just plowed through it. I really really enjoyed it. So it's it's a uh, uh, comes highly recommended for me for what it's worth. And so I, I definitely hope people get out there and and uh, and pick it up. So it's it's very good. You know, that's um, such a generous thing to say as a reader as well as a writer. Those books that you feel that they're kind of urgent, you can't put down and you tear through. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that. And and also there's a, there's a little feeling of sadness as you get towards the end of a really good book because you mm-hmm. think this is so good. I, I kind of wish it could carry on. Uh, so if it, if, it, if it did that for you, Asavia, then um, I, I'm, I'll be buying you drinks forever. <laughs> well, of course, of course. Yeah. So um, let's let's. I was surprised. I didn't know how, you know, I didn't really know anything too much about the book. I was surprised at where you started. So you start all the way at the beginning of, of you know, the formation of Earth. Uh, you go back four and a half billion years ago and just do this big kind of overview um, of of many of the various epochs of, of the Earth. And so 
It's interesting, kind of like you were saying, many people don't look at the history of of climate or natural history. Um, I've had a few folks on here that we have talked about some of that from a you know geology perspective or a biology perspective, uh, but not from a historical one, which was which was really really cool. Um, what, what, how did the Earth, I guess, for you in terms of climate and just in general, what's your perspective of how the Earth looked different and how it changed from four and a half billion years? to 7 million years BC? Well, I guess the first thing was that I, you know, I, I was thinking about humans' interactions with the natural environment. That was, that was what I was trying to write about. And then I thought, you know, the, the light bulb moment that many other scholars have had before me, which is, you know, we are one species amongst very, very many on this planet. And, you know, why would we start, why would we think history starts just with ourselves? You know, maybe we should be more inclusive. So that was one kind of driver. The second one was that you know the, I knew a bit about mass extinctions in the past and the end of the dinosaurs and volcanic eruptions that lasted for tens of thousands of years mm-hmm. and changed climate. And I guess it was sort of thinking that uh, or realizing that every living organism on this planet, uh, plants, animals, bacteria, all all descend from things that survived those those five previous mass extinctions. Mm-hmm. That that made me feel pretty small. I mean, that made me think that the stuff I worry about on a daily basis doesn't really count for too much. And that we as humans have only existed and written history starting with written scripts about 5,000 years ago. We've only been around for about 0.001% of the Earth's history. Even if you, you know, I mentioned, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about religions and things like that too. And if you have a a very strong faith that takes the Bible or the Quran or Torah very very literally about the creation, I'll, I'll, I'll say why that also fits. But I think it was it was the, the the idea that you can't just talk about the environment and climate within the human context, because when you go back into the deep past, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, hundreds of millions of years ago, first thing you realize is that like Goldilocks zones, mm-hmm. we could, our species wouldn't have been able to survive for almost all of the world's history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just so happens that we're in a phase where this suits us extremely well. And Again, you'll have listeners who've got, I'm sure, strong opinions about what's happening at the moment and how and why and what might come next. But I guess it stands to reason that if you change your natural environment around you or the natural environment changes, then biology counts against you. You can't you can't survive unless you adapt. And our species, we typically produce a new generation every 25 years. Parasites do it multiple times every day. Right. And uh, that race to survive biologically as carbon levels change, there's less water, food supplies, et cetera, means that you, you've, got to, you've got to work this stuff out in advance because otherwise we go the way of many other animals that don't exist on this earth anymore. Mm. Yeah, one of the, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. We, 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 we tend to we anthropomorphize everything, right, and see it from a human lens. Um, and But yes, you're, you're absolutely right. For m- millions and billions of years, there was you know, no humans on the planet and we wouldn't have been able to survive. I, 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 when I was reading the book, I was trying to figure out how how it would, how it would be kind of um, you know taking us through that journey because obviously we're having this moment where we're really worried about the changing climate now and and humans um, substantial negative contribution to that um, and obviously you do talk about that uh, towards the end of the book more more directly but I guess the the question here from from history past this very 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 long history billions of years ago is the earth is always changing the earth the climate is changing you you talk about um 
various extinctions, volcanic eruptions, the tectonic shifts, and all of these things still impact the earth. So I guess, you know, not to make a comparison, but, you know, people that, you know, maybe on one side of things would say, well, the earth, the climate's always changing. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's how the history of any planet would be. And I think you would agree with that. And we can talk about why it's different now, um, maybe towards the later in the conversation, but how did those kinds of shifts, I thought that was interesting, impact the earth currently, as an example, where oil reserves are currently as shaped by past tectonic shifts, I thought was, I never really put that together. And I was like, oh, that's why there's oil under Venezuela or in Arabia. Or like, oh, okay, that's really interesting. So maybe just chat about how really ancient shifts in the climate on the planet still impact us today. Well, the first thing is those, those shifts, they took, you know, they took, in some cases, millions of years. You know, those hydrocarbon basins that were formed because of the distribution of plants and tectonic plates and the way in which our, the old geologies and climate and environments have all meshed together, those explain lots of the geopolitical worlds. I mean, for example, the Middle East um, is a hugely complicated political environment largely because of the distribution of oils and the inequalities that come with with large amounts of wealth and um that in many ways this one of the main stories of the 20th century was the story of control of the middle east by uh, intervention of the us soviet union the creation of the state of israel uh, saudi arabian wealth revolution in iran etc 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 and you know i guess the first point would be in the 19th century nobody was that worried about it because about it because oil didn't mean anything in those days because we hadn't developed the kind of engines and technologies that made oil the primary commodity of the 20th century mm. and in the today's 21st century in the green transitions there'll be a shift again too not just because of burning fossil fuels but the distribution of rare earths and things like lithium uh, also copper and all the things that we need the metals that we'll need to be clean and green those 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 are all to do with distributions that are haphazard and long before we got here. So the geopolitical map of the world is dictated by that. In the United States, the southern part of the United States, very, very rich fields that unfortunately were so so plentiful in terms of the chalk deposits and so well done for, for climate conditions in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries that, that those became the heartlands of American slavery or transatlantic slavery, I should say, coerced labor, human beings bought um, by the shipload and brought to the United States uh, because the conditions suited uh, the development of crash crops. And the people in the northern part of the American colonies uh, were no more enlightened or better people because it didn't work that way. It's that the geologies, the geographies, the soils, and the productivity of lands further north weren't as rich as those deep, uh, the, the deep American south. So all of these things have to do with events that happened millions of years ago, in the case of the chalk salts, hundreds of millions of years ago, and they took a really, really long time to take place. And I think for our human uh, thinking, you know, we think of, you know, the Wall Street crash as being, you know, just about within living memory. You know, somebody on the planet, we, we, we knew somebody's grandparents were around about that time. Yeah. Thinking of, you know, Thomas Jefferson or American independence and wearing wigs, we think it's sort of almost comical. The idea of people living 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago uh, you know, it's sort of it's to imagine a completely different world. And uh, and yet uh, it's a blink of an eye. So some of these big events that happened in the past, they, they took millions of years. So, so the, the question, I guess, Sevier, you're asking as well now is uh, what's different about this time? And the difference is that the speed of change 
is what matters. And the climate has changed in the past. I guess if you want to take a negative view, uh, when, when climate change, people normally lose. Yeah. So it's not enough to say, well, it used to rain a lot, now it doesn't rain a lot, people cope. Actually, people didn't cope. And so some of the great cities that uh, that, that don't aren't lived in anymore, no one knows where they are, are all, all the function of failure to adapt to all sorts of different things, not just climate and weather, not just the natural environment, but a whole set of circumstances where the aggravation is provided um, by lots of things, but, but weather and climate and natural resources always plays a role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a there was a book that came out. Uh, it's called uh, Other Lands, and it talks about by uh, I think it's Halliday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic book because it, yeah. it it talks about this very thing about how the Earth, you know, is just we've had like you know ten different Earths, if you will. It, it just one period looks so different from the next period looks, and you know, we as you said, we couldn't live uh, on the humans couldn't live on the planet, you know. 4 billion years ago, 2 billion, you know, even, you know, 60 million, you know, it's just, it's interesting when we think about that. So let's talk about, uh, I guess, uh, humans. Uh, obviously there's a, an interesting evolution with hominins, um, shifting patterns in forest and conditions. Um, I guess t- in terms of how in this period, uh, we can talk up to, I guess, the, the Holocene, how did the, the Holocene period become a more suitable client or climate excuse me climate for for humans um was it just the stable weather patterns the amount of co2 you can talk about fertile crescent green sahara here but what made i guess the planet generally sort of habitable for for humans as we've evolved um from hominins and and then deeper into the holocene well i think that there's a whole set of complex um factors that interlink and some are to do with natural cycles of the orbit of the Earth around the Sun, some to do with the behavior of, of, of the Sun and solar activity too. Our, our, our Earth isn't quite round, so we have a sun eccentricity to our shape. So there are predictable cycles which we go through on 11-year, 22-year, and, and multi-generation. So we're, we're, we, at the end of the Ice Age, uh, the Earth went through, began the start of a, of a warming period. So and that, that, that is not that long ago that the Sahara was, was green, or even that in Antarctica there were forests. All these things that we find quite hard to understand, but they were they were in you know not just blinks of an eye, like I keep saying, but they were they were not that not 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 that far in the distant past. And what that what that did those those gave new opportunities and new challenges. And the first thing that you want if you're going to be able to um, colonize and span out is you need to have food sources, mm-hmm. uh, you need to have water, mm-hmm. uh, you need to have high levels of calorie consumption, and of course. Typically, that means availability of large protein sources, so animals that you can kill, uh, or wild cereals that you can cultivate, or that you can that you can uh, pick and work out how to eat. So, control of fire is important to be able to heat yourself, but also to be able to cook and break down break down a complex food sources so they're more digestible and give you more energy. And then, as, as they become more and more people, those interactions start to change in terms of creations of hierarchies, in ways of cooperation. Uh, the way in which our species, Homo sapiens, came through and became the dominant hominin species, uh, possibly at the expense directly of Neanderthals and others, because we outcompeted and were, were able to adapt quicker, uh, smaller brains. So um, we have a longer, we have a shorter gestation period, easier to survive the traumas of childbirth. And so lots of these different factors all came together. But one of the things I think that was important was that 
those climate conditions started to become more favorable for wider distributions of populations. Mm. And that, that produced a series of, of pulses of dispersals that have been going on for the previous 50, 60, 70,000 years. Uh, most of those have failed, so mm. far as we can tell. Um, because what you need in 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 the the all kinds of I was going to say the pre-industrial era, but you know in the deep past is conditions that are highly predictable are much easier to cope with the ones that are changing are changing dramatically. So uh, big rain events, uh, droughts, volcanic eruptions can produce compressions that are very difficult to survive and to navigate. And um, you know the distribution of humans around the planet is a is a is a wonder in many ways about our ability to put setbacks behind and keep on going and mm. um, even by, by about fifty thousand years ago you're finding um, modern humans in as far away from australia probably new data suggesting that we need to think earlier about when humans first arrived in the americas crossing from asia across the bering strait possibly arriving in the americas as much as thirty thousand years ago mm-hmm. and that that speaks to the ingenuity and also to the drive to go and find places that will accommodate better finding climate niches that give you what you need and as populations come bigger, there's a need to expand and find new places. Yeah, I think that I think the story of how humans evolved and how how the planet was more suitable for them is really fascinating. And then, as you're saying, as you know, it's Homo erectus that you know walked up out of Africa and started, you know, with one of the first you know humans uh, to to start coming out of out of Africa, and then how we just have populated the the, the world is really really interesting. Um, so as we go through time, you start to talk about new commodities and materials start to come around around 4000 BC, especially in the Fertile Crescent. Um, and this is you start having cities and you start having trading. So you can talk about that. Uh, it's interesting. I, I, I talked to um, Eckert Fromm, who's, who's a, he does a seriology. He's a big guy. He just put a book out on, on Assyria. And he talks about this um, as the kind of the first real big empire of on the world. and you know, all of that history. And so we talk a lot about the Feral Crescent and stuff. And it was, we talked a little bit about some of this stuff as well, about, you know, commodities and formation of, you know, early cities and trading and things like that. So you can talk about that, but you also mentioned this watershed moment in 2200 BC in East Asia, which I thought was interesting. I didn't know a lot about that. You can uh, chat about that as well, if you want, towards centralization and, and the environment there. Well, I guess sort of the, the idea of, of creation of cities or, or larger settlements, uh, it's it's an evolving process. You know, I think that, that sometimes in the past, uh, scholars have, uh, some scholars have talked about, you know, the kind of there's a moment or there's, this is this is how things work. And some people settle down and they decide to live together. I think the functions of, of what's interesting is the first sort of big settlements all happen in ecologically prescribed zones so that there are. Uh, propitious water sources and good for, for crop cultivation and for rearing of animals. Uh, but on either side of those zones, there's space and uninhabitable space. So let's like, say the Nile. Uh, if you're near the Nile, then it's a great source of, of food and of, um, of, of, of minerals coming up every year from the, in the Nile floods. But if you get into the Sahara Desert, then it's almost unsurvivable. Likewise, in Mesopotamia, the bit between the Tigris and Euphrates is fantastic. Mm-hmm. In India, the Indus Valley, or in in um, in the chi- in China, the Yellow River and, and Yangtze, but these all happen because there's a there's a, a golden region to live in, and on the other side of the golden region, it's not like silver metal; it's like no good at all. Yeah. So as that golden region becomes more populated, then there there are incentives to try to collaborate. 
And when they're intended to collaborate, um, as in any anybody who works in an office knows, or in a business, they're intended to create inequalities and hierarchies of who makes decisions and who gets the greatest level of rewards. So some of these early cities start to form because of responses to, um, to uh, natural environments. It looks slightly different in the Indus Valley. But the course of the Indus moves a lot because of the silt that it carries, very heavy silt levels. And so there's a lot more space that can be used. And so that, that, that the drive towards inequality is much lower in the Indus Valley than it is in, let's say, Mesopotamia. But these cities, as they start to, to form, generate all sorts of different impulses, eventually including writing systems that are primarily around recording accurately who's growing what, who's doing what, what are prices, and to make sure that a, uh, an infrastructure that makes the state work exists. And we, we slightly romanticize the idea of empires. We think that empires are all about expansion and you know, power and territory, but all empires, whichever region and period, are all about ecological expropriation the reason you build it to take control of goods and resources so british is, is a case in point the expansion of the colonies in the americas uh um and spanish too was not about you know i would like more more space on my map that shows i'm a powerful king it's that what is there that either exists there that i can take or i can grow there cheaper than i can grow back at home and uh those impulses are, are the same uh, even in deep history. And in Mesopotamia, some of the things that happen there are, are establishment of cities with great rivalries eventually, um, exhaustion of resources. So some of the cities chop down all the wood very quickly because wood is a very important, uh, not just a heat source for keeping yourself warm and cooking source, but uh, heat is required to make glass, required to make metal, required to make bricks in due course, except for, except for when you can bake them in the sun. And so even 4,000 years ago, you're finding, look, you're finding convoys going out looking for wood to be brought from long distance overseas, in fact, into Mesopotamia. So you have these cities that rise up. They start to copy each other in their infrastructure. They start to borrow and compete uh, in what they look like, how the kings behave as a kind of brotherhood of kings. This is what a state leader looks like. A bit like how we see the kind of G20 meetings or, you know, when our prime minister, who, whoever that is, by the time this podcast goes out, because we keep changing them over here. You know, there's a kind of an official way in which you get received and then, you know, you give back the other, you know, you give back a suitably good gift. Here in Britain, we went we went crazy when um, Gordon Brown, who's prime minister about 15 years ago, came to see Barack Obama and gave Obama, I think, a, a part of a, a ship that had been involved in the U.S. War of Independence as a way of saying how highly we value uh, our relationship with our special friend. And, and I, I believe President Obama gave him a bunch of DVDs in return. And, you know, we thought we, we had lots of arguments here about, you know, was was Obama living in the 21st century? And we were kind of crazy to be playing up these ancient pasts. But the ways in which um, these kingships in the ancient world stimulated each other, that they patterns of behavior, temples that start to establish themselves with hierarchies of priests who control ideas and control production, take taxes off people uh, and then build monumental buildings. All of those things provide a vibrancy. So around about 2200 BC, you have a series of empires. One, the Akkadian Empire uh, under Sargon and his descendants, Naram-Sin, his grandson. And around about 2200 BC, so about 4,200 years ago, uh, we can detect in the climate signal across lots of different archives uh, a sudden deterioration in weather conditions. We can see that from magnesium spikes in caves in Iran, from Holland and Oman and so on. And what that did in the simplest explanation is 
uh, it reduces revenues because you can't grow so much. There's less tax to go around and your costs go up because there's inflation and goods go up in value. And quite often that leads to social unrest. And at this time, there's something called the curse of Akkad's which you know the, the person who gets blamed is the boss and the king or the ruler. It's obviously he's living in an impious way or he has angered the gods um, because he's too vain or too glorious or too Donald Trump-like. It's, it's all about me, me, me. And by doing that, he's, you, you know, you've ignored the cosmologies. And uh, it's, not an un, it's not an unreasonable thing to, for people to have been questioning at that time. So why is it we're being punished with conditions that are not normal? Something has gone wrong. Maybe we didn't give enough offerings to the temple. Maybe it's Naramsin's problem. Uh, maybe something else has gone wrong. But um, there's a kind of moment that, that, that some historians are trying to now define as the Megalean, a, a sort of break point in history, to look at a particular moment that uh, the climate conditions change. Now, uh, it's not completely, it's not co complete, it doesn't happen in all places all at the same time. So I'm slightly reluctant to think that this is a proper geological boundary point. But we see lots of compressions at the same time, because when you have interconnected networks, when one point fails, then the whole thing sags. Mm -hmm. And you see something like that happening um, in this period. And then there's a kind of a, a step towards recovery after that. Yeah, I, th I think it's it's super interesting how there's a continuous evolving and developing as we just keep building, building, uh, uh, um, you know, cities and as, as we keep expanding. But what the treatment is with the climate and with the environment around us, um, real quick, just because I, th I think it's important to note is um, is is in the step the domestication of horses. That was a a huge thing because we use horses now still. I mean, not like we used to, but you know, but that was like the mode of travel and all these things. But like, you I mean you could talk about how 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 important that was, and then the contribution that has to different cultures, and then what that also changes with the environment as well. Well, horses were, were considered unreliable and dangerous in, in uh, the first sort of city-states because horses were difficult to, to, to learn how to ride and to, to, to train. But the, the key, I think, is that, that obviously horses uh, reduce distances dramatically because you can move quickly. Uh, and you can that, that means you're not just transmitting goods faster, you're transmitting technologies, ideas, diseases, everything else too. And as, as you know, Xavier, from the book I wrote about the Silk Roads, the conveyor belts of the steppes, these flat lands that sit across the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, that run across the whole of Asia, more or less from, more or less from Europe, the whole way through to the Pacific coast of China, uh, is a key vector of, of, of the transmission of all these things, foods, technologies, ideas. And we can, we can measure that and date that with these new sciences and new, new technologies that we have to see that these people who, who lived on the steppes, who bred horses and so on, I've always been described by people living in cities as being uncouth, dirty, chaotic, um, and uh, barbaric. And in fact, they're the glue that, that links cities together for, for, for three reasons. Number one, the speed, like I mentioned, of connect connectivity. Second, people who moan about the smells and the stink of horses and other animals don't like to do that stuff themselves. So they look down on the people because they, they think they can buy them at whatever price. But, but third, um, what makes cities tick uh, above all of water is food sources. And you need people to have not just horses to travel, but protein. You need textiles that come from lamb's wool. You need dairy products as well. And the people living on the steppe are not a kind of part of another world. 
they absolutely rise and fall together with cities. The conjunction of the farm, the farmlands, and the metropolitans is something that we've kind of cut the cord of that in the in the twentieth and twenty first centuries. Where, you know, these days, if you're the smart son or smart daughter, you know, the best job you could get after college is to go and work for an investment bank or a hedge fund and get paid through the nose. Mm-hmm. If you say you want to become a farmer. People think you maybe flunked your grades, or you know there are lots of very smart farmers, but mm. we put, we put farming quite low down the hierarchy of who we think are smart. You know, mm. astrophysics PhD, super smart farmer. You know, anybody could do that, rather than uh, an astrophysics PhD is potentially expendable, unless you're Elon Musk and he mustn't have a few of those up his sleeve. <laughs> but we all need to eat, so I think that connection of what the land means. And horses were a hugely important part of that because people in cities soon realized that the best way to capture other resources was with armies that could move faster, quicker, and fight better than anyone else's. So you need horses to be able to make your make your empire run. And places like China, places like India were not, not great territories to breed and and to breed and raise horses. So the commodity trade was of finding nomads, nomadic peoples who you could buy your equivalents of Ferraris, Lamborghinis, battle tanks. And you need to you need to be buying them all the time. And that means that the interactions with the with the step worlds and the peoples uh, living uh, living on the steps. Um, and I mean steps with two S-T-E-P-P-E-S rather than sounds like steps in a house, right? Uh, but that it's such an intensive and important relationship that it's not just about the role of the horse itself. It's about the peoples that rear them, breed them, the prices that get set for them. How many get sold at what time? And of course, the next point is you can only grow as many, you can only raise many horses as you have pasture land. So clearly, the more it rains or the less it rains, or the conditions that have the most space and are close to cities, the, the difference for uh your 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 reward structures. So it's a completely fascinating relationship between the two. And we we just we just don't really think about it that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember uh, chatting with Marie Favreau uh, and she wrote The Horde. I'm, I'm assuming you've, you've heard of it. Or read it. Oh, she's fabulous. Uh, she's... I've, I've read it. In fact, I, was, I was on a prize committee where she did fantastic, you know, the book, the fantastic, it's a fantastic book. And Marie is a genius. So yes. Yeah. yes. I totally agree. She's the sweetest person. She's absolutely brilliant. And that book was, I mean, I mean, it opened up my mind in so many ways. I, I, I didn't know half of that stuff. And it's so well told, very rich. I mean, she's great. She's wonderful. And so she, I remember we we talked at length about about obviously the whole. I, I guess yeah, with, without without you know just to, just to knock that point on the head, you know, what Marie has done and what what I try to do with Silk Road too is to remind that we, we think of the Mongols as being ultraviolent, chaotic. Mm-hmm. You know, we've ta- we've adopted all those stories mm-hmm. that we heard from people living in cities. Rather than you know, the Mongol Empire was surprised, you know, was obviously hugely sophisticated, but it was also incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. But we've chosen to kind of edit that out to think, well, let's let's talk about ultraviolence rather than what 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 made this empire tick, what made it grow so fast, and what were the Mongols really good at. And actually, as Marie would have told you, mm-hmm. it's a really long list. It's a very surprising one because we we've taken all those prejudices that we've done with lots of other ideas about racism. And you know, again, in my world, when we when we had. Um, the Black Lives Matters movement in the US, which is such an important and powerful gateway to pass through, you know, hundreds of years too late, but there we go. But that those discussions are, haven't started in Asia, particularly around nomadic peoples, where the treatment in Russia, uh, in, you know, in, in lots of parts of Asia, about people who have different ethnicities and do things in a different way, uh, there's still chronic racial prejudice that, that needs to get through the system. And we haven't even started with that yet. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think with with the uh, with with the horde and, and the Mongols, is you know, administratively how they were able to to manage so much uh, land and different peoples, and uh, the integration was, I mean, absolutely tremendous. So I obviously want to be respectful of your time. So I'm gonna I'm gonna jump forward. Uh, there's many things in there. You talk about obviously the 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 Roman Empire. You had some really good bits in there about the Mayan Empire, which was really fascinating. But uh, I'll bring it up a little bit to more current times. Um, two, two or three big questions here. How big or how important were, was the industrial age? And, and how do we see, um, you know, you talk a lot about uh, the transatlantic slave trade. You talk about slavery here in the United States and elsewhere. Um, but what was those big themes? And then, you know, obviously the industrial period, those big themes of how humans you know began to sort of change or not change but there was an evolution of what the interaction was with humans in the environment where maybe there was less consideration or there was more of an exploitation um of of peoples and then of of land maybe just chat about that thematically i guess yeah uh gosh so sorry maybe maybe i come back and do a second 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 <laughs> version so we, we get with all those that's really i mean i hope your readers will find it interesting uh, so now we think of industrialization as the mainly in the form of um, the emergence of capitalism, but above all, at the beginning of the fossil fuel age of the burning of, of carbon. Uh, I, I, the things that I think are really interesting about the industrial age is it's about the speed of exchange. What industrialization allows you to do is to intensify distance and speed of connections uh, through all sorts of different ways. But one of the things that that does is it globalizes very quickly. I mean, compared to the age of sale or compared to whatever. But something else that underpins industrialization, one of the reasons why it, it picked up so quickly in the United Kingdom is that uh, what mattered was not um, university educations and scientists you know, trying to do breakthroughs one by one. It was very lots of lots of very, very small entrepreneurs making small adjustments to, um, to tools that allowed things to happen to be able to scale up quickly. And we tend to think, again, about single moments, single individuals, almost always men, having a kind of light bulb moment. But industrialization allowed the, the speed by, by encouraging people to develop rewards from making products just a tiny bit better than they already were and making the means of production a tiny bit better than they were. And that then sets in place a whole set of, of different uh, sequences. First, of course, the rise of capitalism, the intensification of inequality, industrialization of, of having workforces moving into cities, so high levels of urbanization into squalid conditions. And, and the pace of that is kind of extraordinary. So Chicago has about 300 people living in it in about 1830, and about 50 years later, population of almost a million. Right. And laying out cities that quickly, building infrastructure to cope, having civic organizations that can put out fires, can have ju do, you know, deliver justice for thieves or for disputes between neighbors, all those kinds of things require huge accelerations. And accelerations can 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 produce very, very positive outcomes because people are trying to work out what the best thing to do is and they're constantly learning. And I think that in, in some ways that, that industrialization was about lots of tests being done to see what would be the best possible solution. And in a funny way, you could look at it, it's not what I say in the book, but you know, one could look at it to say that that baked in so many, su such self-satisfaction by the start of the 20th century that we we stopped innovating at that point. Uh, in the developed West. 
uh, where you know we 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 stuck we we double down on the fact that this is what our constitutions look like that this is how you elect people in the United States how you have your you know the the colleges that submit their votes to to Congress when you have presidential elections and and kind of baking in saying that's just how things are done we won't change it and you know one of the challenges we have in the 21st century is that in geopolitics in climate etc when we're faced with change we're not we're not adapting particularly fast we've we've given up on that tinkering that we do only in the private sector towards business and innovation but not at government level and and probably we we need a bit of a reboot about you know what should the houses of congress look like as representatives look like how should they be elected what role should we as citizens have given we've got digital tools we could all be voting every single day on topics that matter to us or don't matter to us but we kind of shut the door and said this is this is the highest form of representative democracy and we're going to stick with it rather than ever change because reform suddenly becomes difficult but that's not what the story of the 19th century was in the United States for example mm-hmm. yeah so last two questions here is is, is you 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 talk about the tremendous impact of Rachel Carlson or Carson in uh in uh in the 60s and she came out with Silent Spring there actually it was a recent book that just came out uh uh by Douglas Brinkley uh, where he talks about uh, her impact and then the impact with uh, some of the previous presidents in the in the uh, mid twentieth century. Fabulous book. It's also it's actually bigger than your book, so it's yeah, it's, it's a very large book. It's a, <laughs> I, I have read it, so I'll get I'll get a copy. Yeah, it's great. And um, yeah, so I mean, just where do we get this awareness um, in in the kind of the fifties and sixties of what we were doing as humans, the role of humans really on you know, the things that we know about today, and then you can bring it up to today about the issues we have, deforestation, uh, carbon, uh, ocean acidification, et cetera. Um, how do we start really getting this kind of momentum to think about climate change and global warming and um, and just kind of where we're at today and where, where we might be headed? Well, I, I guess, you know, the, the traumas of the Second World War, uh, you know, for U.S. servicemen and the Pacific and in Europe, but you know, above all, the, the the tragedy and and disgrace of the Holocaust and the suffering of millions of women, men, children, and besides. You know, I think that that, that framed the the anxieties for many people in the second half of the 20th century that we might one day repeat those prejudices and and disasters. That the anxieties around nuclear weapons that that we might doom doom ourselves by taking stupid decisions. And then the way in which, like Rachel Carson in Silent Spring, over-intensive exploitation of uh, of agriculture, the use of heavy use of pesticides, the belief that science will always win out, and that every anything that's new must be good without ever thinking that uh, you might kill off the bugs, but then you kill off all the birds as well, mm-hmm. and that ingesting things that have been grown, having been sprayed with pesticides, was probably not going to be the smartest outcome. But then on the other hand, there was a the, the 20, second half of the twentieth century was also one of profound hope and belief. You know, 1955, head of one of the big U.S. vacuum companies said within the next 10 years, they're going to be nuclear powered vacuum cleaners. Mm. You know, uh, people thought that that nuclear weapons, nuclear bombs rather, could be used to create giant new harbors on the American West Coast that would allow improvements in tourism, shipping and new cities to be built. And looking back on it, you think, how can anybody um, ever think that um, nuclear detonation would be quite would be a good idea? But you know the the achievements of the space program, the what led to things like the internet being developed, were were moments of were, were periods of, of real innovation and optimism about the future. I guess we're probably stuck somewhere in that same split 
Jekyll and Hyde world today, where mm. we're deeply concerned about the present and the future in terms of global warming, sea level rises, extreme weather events. But then on top of that, AI, rise of China, fragmentation you know, of Russia, global trading systems and supply chains collapsing. You in the US are just passing a national debt at what, $32 trillion, something like that now. And, and that, that would make most people quite sanguine about what the future looks like. And yet, at the same time, you know, on a different day of the week, we might think, gosh, maybe we're not that far from attempted colonizations of the moon. Uh, these amazing things that are being developed in the sciences may make us stay ahead of diseases in the future. The, you know, the ways in which we understand disease through uh, decoding of the genome and, and the ways in which we might look at reasonably finding cures for cancer in, in, in the coming years and other diseases too. Uh, you know, that we're quite innov innovative. And I guess our human story is about blending those two of mm. faith in the future and also the fear of Armageddon. And every belief system, uh, including the non-established religions, I mean, the environmental movement is very much in the kind of Judeo-Christian tradition of expecting the, the end of the earth too. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's it's balancing those two between them. And Rachel Carson was at the pessimistic end of the, of the catastrophizing. So too with Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb. And the idea that you know we were going to die in our millions because we couldn't feed, feed ourselves, you know, we we've managed to stay ahead of that bad traffic. But you know, eventually, you probably reckon on the odds of being run over at some point. So we, we've got to, we've just got to be stay nimble to make sure that we get we stay lucky, um, and that we don't have the kind of compression events and the shocks that have been so important in past human history that have led to places I write about in my book that most readers, unlike you, Xavier, won't know Uruk or Nineveh or Merv, you know, they might know Angkor or Pagan, these great cities in, in Asia. But, you know, human history is all about things that have failed, you know, that don't survive, Roman Empire, you know, the ancient Greeks, that time keeps on moving. And um, if you don't adapt and embrace change, then, then you get replaced by different peoples, different political systems, and the worst case, by different animals, by different species. Yeah, that's just very nicely said. Well, the book is called The Earth Transformed, An Untold History. Uh, it's out everywhere. Where's the best places for folks to uh, to find you and your work? Uh, I, I'm, I have a, my website, www.peterfrankopan.com, that I update periodically. I'm on, I'm on Twitter. I try to engage. I enjoy Twitter. I've lost my blue tick uh, 24 hours ago, so uh, which I take as a badge of pride, actually. I don't understand that whole business model. Of people working for free, sharing ideas. But I love interacting with readers. I, I'm much happier to interact with generous and kind ones than ones who tell me they've got a spelling mistake or something. But you know, tell me gently. Uh, but you know, I, it's a real pleasure for me to know that there are people who read my books. I'm a university professor, and most university professors want people to read their books, and it doesn't happen. So I'm really grateful that mine's on the other side of the Atlantic. You've read it, Xavier, and be so generous, and also to tell you you read it quickly which is the, the best endorsement an author could ever have so thank you yeah yeah no no it's 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 a tremendously wonderful book um i was very very happy to read it i really it's one of my favorites this year and um very very happy to to have this discussion with you um it, it was absolutely wonderful and you are of course welcome to come back on anytime and uh I'd love, I'd love that you, you know how to find me so just yes. reach out and I'll find like a, like a I'll get shorter answers next time I promise <laughs> alrighty well thank you Thank you.